Today's first scripture reading is from James 3, 5 through 8. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The second reading is from Proverbs 13, verses 2 and 3 and 5. From the fruit of his mouth a man eats what is good. But the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wise his lips comes to ruin. And verse 5, the righteous hate falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Susan. Well, we are continuing our series on Proverbs for the Digital Age. Um, If you're new here, we want to welcome you here. My name is John Song. I am the senior pastor of City of Hope. Please feel free to fill out the contact card on the QR code scanning on the back of your bulletin. We'd love to connect with you and let you all know what's uh, happening here at City of Hope. Um, But we will continue our series looking at how wisdom, which is the principal uh, sort of theme of Proverbs, how wisdom guides us in this cultural moment that we now are in. And so last week we talked about this idea that wisdom must be sought after. It's the desire of our hearts. It's not just something that we sort of think about in terms of wisdom. It's something that we actively are engaged in. We, We talked about the sufficiency of Scripture for every circumstance, meaning that we can apply the verses of Proverbs to our current moment and see the wisdom of God, His knowledge and understanding, as we talked about last week, to carry and lead us forward. So today we're going to be continuing on in Proverbs and talking about digital, uh, in our digital age in terms of our speech, how we use our words, how we talk about others, and how we as Christians can speak with wisdom in a folly-saturated world. So before we do that, um, can we pray together? Let's pray. Father, speak to us in truth and wisdom. Guide us with all knowledge and understanding. Give us tongues that speak in the way of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we talked about the purpose of Proverbs, and now we will survey the book of Proverbs on given topics. If you've ever sort of read through the book of Proverbs, you'll know it's hard to connect necessarily one proverb to the very next proverb that you read. And so maybe the best way to study Proverbs at home is topically. Uh, This is maybe one of the few times where instead of an expository verse-by-verse preaching of Scripture in Proverbs, you you go and scour for what topics look like. So uh, we will be looking at several verses all over the book of Proverbs talking about what it means to speak with wisdom. Now, when when Proverbs is talking about our tongues or our mouths, he's he's not referring literally to the anatomy of the tongue or the mouth. It's always in reference to what we say and how we say it. 
And really the heart of what I want to talk about today is I want to consider this question. What does it mean to speak like a Christian? What does it mean to speak like a Christian? I imagine that there are many of you who have thoughts regarding this question. Sadly, I imagine for many of you, when I say speak like a Christian, you may have in your mind conjured up many negative stereotypes. Maybe someone who's a little passive-aggressively judgy, you know. Maybe someone who is uh, always sort of hiding behind uh, sort of God-speak and not really revealing the truth of who they are and how they live. Uh, that phrase can be a sort of a, a trigger to how we think about how Christians engage, particularly with those online and with those in whom they disagree. So we're going to talk about four things today that Proverbs wishes for the church to see. Four things. One, uh, the power of words. Two, the evil of words. Uh, three, the prudence of words. And four, the redemption of words. So power, evil, prudence, and redemption. So here's how it will go. Um, well, we'll read through several of these Proverbs and talk to them together, beginning with our first point, the power of words. So let's start with our scripture reading from this morning, Proverbs 13, 2, 3, and 5, if we can get that on the screen. Uh, from the fruit of his mouth, a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He opens wide, his lips come to ruin, and the righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. I'd like to begin with a story um, by the author and theologian Samuel Logan and his uh, really wonderful book about slander called The Good Name. Uh, so he, he shares the story. Uh, the year was 362 AD. The Roman Emperor Julian was wondering how he was going to get his pagan temples up and running again without the interference of those pesky Christians getting in his way. You see, at this point in history, uh, Christianity had spread through the Roman Empire like a tidal wave. About less than 50 years prior, the former Emperor Constantine declared that Christianity was legal. And without persecution, Christianity grew in such a way that Christianity became this cultural and political force. So, so Julian didn't want any pushback from the Christians for reopening the pagan temples again. So how would the Emperor Julian pass through his agenda, was he just going to go and persecute Christians again, jailing them up? Uh, Julian, being a deceptively crafty politician, he had another strategy. You see, he knew the Christians at that time were in the middle of this huge theological debate called the Arian heresy. And he knew that these bishops were in all in disagreement with each other and publicly disagreeing with each other slanderously in the public square. So he did what any sneaky person would do. He brought all the Christian bishops into his temple and he just said, I would like for all of you to politely lay aside your differences and observe each other's beliefs and we want to create this space for you to dialogue without fear of opposition from one another. So get together and agree. How do you think that that went? The historian Sam Logan writes this, as the freedom to disagree increased the Christian's dissension, the Emperor Julian knew afterwards he had no fear of a united Christianity, knowing as he did from experience that no wild beasts are such enemies to mankind as most of the Christians in their deadly hatred of one another. 
And he was right. The Christians of Julian's day turned their, you know, to their tristies and their blogs and their Twitter feeds against each other. And Emperor Julian reopened the pagan temples uh, up to the masses with little opposition. In other words, while Christians were fighting for the right theology amongst the terrors of the Arian heresy, they did so in such a way in their speech that demolished their testimony and allowed for the world to gain a foothold. Proverbs 2, 13, 2 and 3 remind us that our words have incredible power. The power to enjoy the fruits of what we say or the power to ruin our witness or even our entire lives. The power to follow the path of righteousness or the power to bring us shame and disgrace. The power to advance the kingdom of God or the power to allow the powers of the secular age to advance other gods in its place. Proverbs highlights this principle over and over and over again. Look at Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So what does this mean for us today? Um, you know, there's many ways that the power of words can be applied, but I want to focus on this one popular notion that we need to debunk right now, and that is this belief that words carry no force or power in and of themselves. You know, sort of the old children's proverbs that you grew up saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Or the adult defense now, very popular online, is, you know, I don't care what that man says, I just care what he does. You know, sure, he might say things rough-haggedly, and oh, don't we all do that? But hey, let's just focus on what he does. David French, the political commentator, has this great line about those who are trolls online in the public sphere and, and captures sort of this wrong ethos. It's, it's this phrase that goes around that says, oh, you know, I know he's a jerk online, but man, you should see him in the soup kitchen. Now, now certainly we know what is meant by a phrase like this, uh, that oftentimes we have people who speak imprecisely and that their actions can have more force than their words, but Scripture clearly <laughs> is rebuking this line of thinking. You see, the Bible is saying here, show me a person and I will show you the power of who they are and how they speak. You see, our words aren't just a, oh, a slip of the tongue. They open up a window to our hearts and give us access to the master control room of the soul. Think about this. Proverbs is asking us to consider that the way we use our words is an outward expression of the power that points to the God that we worship. So if you worship yourself, you will believe the power of words is your self-identity, your ability, your craftiness, authenticity, self-idealization is God, and you will want power for yourself in your words. I can say what I want because I am king. If you worship others, then people-pleasing will be your God. And you will want others' words to have power over you. So you will say, I will say what you want. Unless, of course, you want to stop me. Because you are king. If you worship Christ, then he will control your speech. And give it true power. Because it will be him controlling your life in the best ways possible. So your phrase will be, I will say what God wants. Because Christ is king. 
In this, we find the summation of all of this in Proverbs 10, 31. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. Proverbs remind us there is extreme power in our words. And with that power comes our second point, the evil of words. Let's look at these block of Proverbs, Proverbs starting from Proverbs 16. Um, um, oh, sorry, 11.9. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. Proverbs 16.27. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man, Proverbs 16.28. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Proverbs 17.4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and the liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. There is in our fallen world and in our fallen hearts, knowing that our words have the capacity to do horrific and evil things. Think about this. If what the Proverbs here are saying are true, the tongue is the power to take life or to give it. That the very words you proclaim have the outcome of of giving someone dignity as someone who is made in the image of God or in your carelessness, stripping them of it. The tongue, as the book of James says in our New Testament reading, is a raging fire that those who are able to understand its evils, understand its ability to cause the world to be changed forever. You know, I was reflecting on this this week. I, I don't remember all the cuts and bruises that I had as a young child growing up in elementary school. But I can almost pinpoint to you exactly when someone made fun of my race in my lunchbox growing up in elementary school. Almost exactly, and I, it's, it's seared into my skull. And I imagine for many of you, you've had the similar cuts in your childhood. The words that someone said to you that have remained in you forever to make you feel small. Now why is that? Those words that come out of our mouths that we regret or that are said to us that, that, um, that other people have said to us, they stay in us because we realize how much damage they cause. We realize the people that we've left devastated in our wake. Do you know why we find extremism on social media so disturbing? One reason is because at the end of the day, it's a disgusting way to try and gain power the evilness of words. In search for influence, morality, and control outside of Christ, we see individuals at an alarming rate presenting fictitious identities of themselves and using their words to further divide, separate, manipulate people into not us versus them. That's not necessarily always a bad distinction, but us or them. Narratives that perpetuate us into verbal war. So it's gotten so bad now that we actually have now organizations that have uh, been established by major universities to understand how, why and how this division exists and why it has happened so fast and so quickly. Chris Bale, uh, in his book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, talks about his work as the director of the Polarization Lab in Duke University, an organization that has using, using computational science to determine how social media became so divided and radicalized fringe views. His work comprised of interviewing political extremists who appeared to be brash and violent in their posts. But the surprising nature of his research is that when he met those extremists, those very same extremists in real life, 
He was shocked by the way that they acted were shells of the online personas they had created. He discovered that they sought to use their online experience to curate a new identity, an identity that would be bolder, brasher, and angrier than their personas in their real lives, destitute, watching cable news all day. But in doing so, in his research, he realized that the personas that they made didn't give them the power they had hoped. It was a delusion that actually let depravity run amok in the public sphere, that did radical harm to others and silenced the voice of the exhausted majority. His conclusion after this research was groundbreaking, that research suggests that contrary to popular belief, you know, the echo chambers and the algorithms are less to blame for polarization than the extremism that floods the networks with constant slander. For example, he found on Twitter, 73% of tweets on politics are shared and authored by only 6% of Twitter users, all with extreme views that further divide a polarization. Is it no wonder that we feel this sense of longing dread when we log on to these platforms? So this has implications for us, church. Um, our testimony, the church's word, could be that spark that burns down the entire witness of the body of Christ, that the Great Commission is leading us to tell differently. Think about those Canadian wildfires and the destruction that is caused by the sheer ridiculousness of a small spark and the damage that it can do. There is no such thing as a small slip of the tongue that cannot and does not do irreparable harm. There is nothing in the category of the Christian community of, oh, you know, the innocent lie, harmless gossip, true fiction. But verse 8, I'm sorry, but we're reminded of the idea that, that this is a restless evil, a deadly poison. We cannot try and make evil good no matter how much we dress it up. Consider what the Westminster Larger Catechism has to say on this very issue of the Ninth Commandment. Um, you know, they did not wish to mince any words here on the pathway that what happens when we embrace lying, thou shalt not lie in our own lives. Uh, I'm going to read this thing in full and quickly because I want you to feel the force of how many sins are embedded in this Ninth, ninth Commandment. So here we go. What are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment are all prejudicing the truth, the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public justice, giving false evidence, bringing false witness, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous, and the righteous according to the work of the wicked, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calleth for either or proof from ourselves, or complaint to others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting it to a wrong meeting, or in doubtful or equivocal expressions to the prejudice of the truth or justice, speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, table-bearing, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, impartial censuring, misconstructing intentions, words and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God, aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession, unnecessarily discovering infirmities, raising false rumors, receiving or encountering evil reports, and stopping our ears against just defense, evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desire to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, scornful content, fond admiration, breach of lawful promises, neglecting such things are of a good report and practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others, such things as procure an ill name. 
And then after this, 47 verses of proof text to show how much God hates this sin. Now as you hear that, what jumps to your mind? You know, if your first instinct is to apply this to them instead of apply it to ourselves, then I might ask you to reread this again and ask yourself some questions. What evils have we allowed to be stored in our hearts regarding our speech? Have we allowed the poisonous nature of our words to allow the devil to gain a foothold in our hearts and our lives? Do we really consider the weight of all that is meant when Scripture says, Thou shalt not lie? Because here's the thing. Um, I, I don't know about you. Uh, maybe City of Hope people are better with their speech than I am, but, but when I look at this, I realize that from apart from the grace of God, I am not just a liar, I am a profoundly wicked liar. And I will not fi only find ways to lie about the way that I lie, but I will also lie to myself about why I did it. And I can only come to one conclusion in thinking about all of this that I want you to consider as well. If what the Bible is saying here about words is true, then I am not only being poisoned by these lies, but that I am bringing hell to myself and to others. Proverbs gives us this real danger sign, the warning that should shake us to the core. Unchecked, unfiltered, and unapologetic, our words will do great harm to those that we love and bring evil to this world that forever shapes its course. But, but here's, here's the good news. There's something greater here that I want all of you to consider here today. That if this indeed is the weight of sin that we are responsible for, then it must mean the grace of Jesus Christ is far greater fountain than any of us could have ever hoped, any of us could have ever imagined. A God who looks at all of our lives, the death that they are responsible for, the punishment and judgment that surely must be ours. And he says, I will still send Jesus to save these people so that they might know the full and free grace of the gospel of Christ. You can say whatever you want and you think to God and his response will always be to you that he still pursues you. He still loves you. He still sends Jesus for you. This should reveal to us today in the light of the holiness of God how much our admonition, our cursing against other people made in his image is a denial of the very gospel we believe in. Proverbs shows that Christians live in the hypocrisy of proclaiming Jesus as Lord and then turning around and using that same mouth to curse those that Jesus died for. Isn't that the ultimate hypocrisy? To sing in church that God is our Father, speak, O Lord, and then to turn to others and try to prove that you are God and Lord by cursing them. You know, cursing in Scripture is not merely just the use of certain words and phrases. Uh, the word has this force in the original language of Scripture as condemnation, all right, judgment, speaking slander towards the fellow men. You know, there's a sort of final judgment quality that you are making when you curse them. A self-righteousness that you are Im imposing on that people group, that tribe, that sports team, that church, that public figure, when you are slandering their name. And when you do so, you are forgetting the Christ that you worship. So, you got to think to yourself, how do, you, how do we try and get away with this? 
Um, I want to address one way that we as sinners try to cleverly absolve ourselves in this hypocrisy uh, as Christians. Lately, what concerns me as a minister is I've been hearing people claiming this fact. You know, it's okay for me to slander evil people because after all, didn't Jesus do that? Didn't the apostles do that? Didn't John the Baptist frequently use name-calling as a part of his prophetic witness? I mean, if it's okay for Jesus, isn't it okay for me? Didn't Jesus call the Pharisees twice the sons of hell, brood of vipers? Why then is the Christian only limited to speaking words of love? If Jesus himself used inflammatory language, pastor, got you, proof text, boom. My quick response to that is simple. You know, slander is slander, and don't bring Jesus into your sin. But if you want a more detailed response, Herman Bovink, a Dutch Reformed theologian, quotes uh, the Genevan Reformed Benedict Pictic in examining this particular issue. Why did Jesus use what appears to be slanderous language and proposes three corrections to the Christian who thinks slander is appropriate because Jesus did it. Number one, you aren't Jesus or the apostles. And so there are privileges and benefits that aren't granted to you in the infallibility of your claims when you slander others. Number two, God has granted Jesus the authority to call rightful judgments. So in other words, unless you have a voice from God telling you to do it, and we're mostly sensationists in this room, that you don't have that authority. Number three, the purpose and goal that Jesus and the apostles have in mind with their fierce denunciations are largely different and differ greatly from what people generally have in mind when you berate others. You see, the danger is that the prevailing nature of humanity is that when we are addicted to slander as a means of public discourse and false condemnation as a means of of a way of expressing social, like, dialogue, it becomes a stain on us. We guise our gossip and slander against those made in the image of God and call it standing for truth, gospel boldness, taking a stand. In reality, all we're doing is just sin. Christians of every age embrace this timeless act of acting like a bully in the playground towards those that would oppose them. The Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, the early church father Tertullian, uh, even Martin Luther, The champion German reformer was so famously irresponsible with his slander that today you can go to a website called the Martin Luther Insult Generator where it will randomly generate for you some of his most famous verbal thrashings. While we tend to lionize... Don't don't look that up during the sermon. Um, While we tend to lionize those in church history, we need to stop defending poor speech as being courageous or contextual and instead consider how our speech is trying to replace God as judge. Perhaps it would be better to take the stance of the reformer John Calvin, who wrote in his commentary that he who, is truly, he who truly worships and honors God will be afraid to speak slanderously of man. So, what are we to do? What could be the remedy of all of this? Proverbs give us a way forward, the prudence of words, our our third point here today. Um, Let's have these block of verses on the screen, um, starting from Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. 
A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. I love this last one. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. I love that one. Um, what is this saying here? Proverbs reminds us of the reality of what wise words are. They are measured. They are thoughtful. They are not always giving everyone everything that needs to be heard or seen of. Um, sometimes even the best things that we can do is consider silence as a way forward. Uh, this rubs against, by the way, many cultural values that comes up when it comes to how we use our words. Uh, in Eastern cultures, like in East Asia, the, like the Korean culture that I grew up in, you know, honor and shame are a, a huge dynamic of how we speak. So there are many things that are just simply never talked about culturally, socially. Um, it, it, it could appear as though that there's, you know, you're stuffing it down or even dangerously suppressing them within. Um, emotionally, there's actually a Korean phrase for this. It's called han, right? This sort of deep sense of regret and sorrow and justice, right? That's sort of bottled up because there's nothing you can do about it and there's sort of nothing that you can speak about it. But, but, but what's the danger of that? Is that what Proverbs is talking about? No, it's not prudence. Why? Because um, as many Koreans know, the practice of bottling up your words inside of you, letting sort of the Han build up to explosiveness, actually leads to hypocrisy. It's a way of, that leads to greater harm for yourself and to others. It actually causes shame and dishonor, the very things that we were trying to avoid by bottling up our words. Now, likewise, in more Western cultures, how we speak is largely di dictated on the principles of, of sort of freedom and individuality who, who prize highly this idea of authenticity above everything else. In most Americanized societies, silence is viewed as complicit. It's evil. And saying everything that you mean about everything that you mean to say it is the highest value that you can have as a Western American. Unfiltered words is the authentic you. And it doesn't matter if you've caused great harm to other people as, or if you even said things that were factually untrue. You know, you were just speaking your truth, keeping it 100. Or well, the older phrase, keeping it real, right? Straight facts, no cap is like the new Gen Z thing, right? I know this, okay, whatever. Right? But the hypocrisy, right, of Western culture is that the name of authenticity and individuality, you wind up speaking things that are completely untrue, but people applaud you for it because, man, you were just saying what was on your heart. They're often rooted in fleeting emotional responses rather than the truth, turned into stunt-based outrage or even virtue signaling. Uh, do you all remember, like, this was a while back, right? The ice bucket challenge of, like, 10 years ago, right? Uh, no one could tell you what ALS was, but everyone wanted to do the ice bucket challenge, right? Like, it's sort of this idea that we want to use our words because it just seems like the authentic and right thing to do in the moment. So what Proverbs is saying here to both Eastern and Western cultures, whether they are more geared towards silence for the sake of fake peace or speaking for the sake of breaking peace, it's not that it's about you know, by the way, it's not about that it's just about being silent makes you wise or always speaking your mind makes you wise, but rather the prudence of how you speak and when you speak is what, as the Proverbs saying, preserves your life, demonstrates understanding and keeps yourself from being a fool. 
guarding our words carefully, knowing, do I have the authority to speak about this? What I'm saying, what, what, what words will I choose to use here and why? Would it be wise to share with this person whom I don't even know everything vulnerable about me? Uh, these, these are all things that require wisdom, charity, grace, and foresight. So when we start to see the prudence of our words, that, that will lead us then to our last thing that we're going to say here today, and that's the redemption of our words. Look at these final Proverbs up here. Proverbs uh, 14.25. A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. In Proverbs 15.4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. These rhetorical analogies, uh, one talking about the tongue being the tree of life, rooted in the fruit of righteousness, and another talking about how a true witness saves people's lives. These are redemptive terms, right? Uh, about how the words we say carry redemption in them. And when we think about this, there really is only one redemption that can be found in our words. And that comes from our identity rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. When you live out your identity in Christ, the natural outpouring of your speech will be the overflow of resting in His grace, in His words. Because let me remind you about what the identity of Christ looks like when we think about Jesus and the way that he models wisdom for us. John 1, Jesus comes as the Word, the living Word, the perfect Logos, who spoke truer than any man before him and any man that would come after him. This Word isn't, you know, this sort of distant reality that speaks to us from afar and has no sympathy with the world that we live in. No, this word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The word who speaks compassionately and weeps for Lazarus, though Christ knows that he will rise again. The word who speaks healing to the demonically possessed, speaks to the lame to rise and walks, speaks with the Samaritan woman words of grace and an invitation to the bread of life. The word who calls his disciple to fervently teach the gospel of good news. The word that forgives his disciples by abandoning them and calls them into ministry despite deserving just condemnation for their betrayal. The word that saw through the lies of the religious people who could wax eloquence yet whose hearts were far away from God. The Christ who speaks words of forgiveness even on the cross, extending paradise to the broken thief and pleading with God the Father to forgive his tormentors. This Jesus extends his same redemption to you. That if you, what, confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And because of that, you are his. And speaking like a Christian isn't just about, you know, restraining yourself about, oh, I really want to say this, but oh, God is stopping me. It's speaking like a Christian is about speaking Christ's love, grace, compassion, mercy, and justice and truth in a way that opens the door for redeeming others. Speaking like a Christian means that you don't have to have a flattering tongue to be loved by the world, but you also don't have to be a jerk to proclaim the truth to go and make disciples through the spreading of the good news, to consider how the very words you speak will bring new life into those around you, your families, 
your relationships at work, your friends. When you live with Christ as your redemption, your outflow just isn't capable of producing any other kinds of words. See, it doesn't become the fruit of this world, but the fruit of the Spirit. So what does it mean to speak like a Christian? It means for the church to rise up is being, rise up and be united to Christ and his body. It's the antidote towards living incarnationally like Christ did on his words. Not just throwing out words to proclaim no matter what, but the recognition and see how the words of Christ have changed us. And consider how it changes others. This is the wisdom of Proverbs. Let's pray together. Mm-hmm.